thank you for tuning into this episode of Question This Life. You can listen to the podcast at questionthislife.com, as well as all of the main podcast platforms. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and get involved. Welcome back to the show. Question This Life, thank you very much for joining. It's been a good experience for me to listen to some of the episodes that I've put out recently. I've noticed a couple of things that can definitely be improved in terms of logistically speaking, technically speaking, with the audio sound, especially when I've got another guest on. Um, someone close to me has also listened to a few episodes and given me some feedback, so I'm taking that on for sure, and I'm pleased to tell you guys that obviously that will involve a better product. It will create a better product. So I want there to be a nice mixing when there's a guest on and we haven't recorded in the same room, for example. At that point, you're kind of subject to whatever quality audio recording you can get from the the guest and obviously I can only control so much on my side and then at the end there's a little task to regulate the audios to make them sound at least a little bit similar that there isn't too much of a gap in volume or too much background noise in one of them or too much gain not enough gain so all of this is a learning experience and as someone who's recorded my voice a lot, I'm really, really getting into that part of this too. So that's really great. And building on what I got into in the last episode, that I like, I'd like there to be a little, little bit more structure in these episodes. Essentially a first half that's a bit like this, my inner monologue, my thoughts, putting myself out there and bringing you guys along with the ride. And then the second half, which is more a look into ancient history, ancient affairs, alternative theories, and all that kind of stuff. So last week, I started with the self-reflection and uh, how my week's gone and telling you guys what I've been up to and, and all that. And then I went on to talk about the Antikythera device, which had a very recent study published by the team that's investigating that device and they've managed to create some 3D models of what they believe the device was and how it worked and what it showed and it's really really quite mind-blowing so if you haven't listened to that listen to the last episode and I linked some of the scholarly journals in the show description for that episode so check that out seriously it's properly mind-blowing um and one thing I noticed when I re-listened to that episode is there is quite a sudden change from section one to section two, let's say. So at one point I'm talking about something really, really deep and meaningful to me personally. And then suddenly I'm like, and in other news, the Antikythera device. It kind of came a little bit, whoa, that was random. So uh, for this week and from now on, I'm also going to use the same audio track that you hear at the start and end of each episode. And I'm going to take a little section of that and put it into 
the middle of the podcast or anytime there's a clear change between topics just so that it's a little bit more fl- uh, fluid and you can kind of follow along with it and it's not so jarring to to jump from one thing that then completely pivot to another so that's the latest on the podcast itself the logistics the numbers are uh, slowly creeping up it's lovely to see all the downloads and to see where all the listeners are coming from uh, English-speaking nations so I've got some listeners from the UK now the show is being listened to by uh, people in the United States and Canada and Australia and there's a few listeners in Southeast Asia we've got a couple of listeners in the Caribbean it's really really awesome uh, what's possible with technology these days how quickly and how efficiently you can get something up and running and start getting it up there and out in the ether and listen to so i really appreciate you all anyone who's tuning in thank you so much for listening i hope you're enjoying the content so far so with that all said let's get into the first section of this episode this episode of questionless life i want to focus on some inner work that i've been doing in the last week I can't say too much specifically, I'll be a little bit coy, but let's just say I went on a specific type of journey with a couple of close friends, and I learned a hell of a lot about myself and the way that my value structures are built, a lot of the stuff that has been blocking me from being able to really put myself out there and so on, and I'll get into that a little bit in detail. But essentially something that I realized really quickly through this deep uh, internal exploration was I have a very big tendency and I really hope that, that before I start and kind of get into this, I want, to make, I want to make it really clear that all of this work I'm doing is obviously benefiting me. But I think that by being open and putting this out there, that maybe other people who have had similar issues or slightly different but kind of similar issues or even someone who has the exact opposite type of issues to the ones that I have might listen to this and gain something from it whether it means that you need to do a little bit of investigation yourself maybe you it rings perfectly true with you and you kind of know exactly where I'm coming from but I've had a a tendency in my life until Definitely until the last couple of years, it's, it's improved a lot, but I've had a tendency in my life to be very agreeable and to kind of go with the flow, not to upset the apple cart too much. And there's a million reasons why that is the personality that I have. There's a lot of factors there as to why that is. I touched on it in some of the earlier episodes that I moved around a lot when I was growing up, so there was a lot of uh, like geographical instability in my life and a very challenging aspect of my upbringing was having to kind of settle into a new place very often. Had to do that a lot, um, which obviously has so many positives and negatives, like anything. It's not an experience or a childhood that I would change in any way and actually I'm super, super grateful for it because it's made me who I am as a person. It's made me very open-minded. I'm very into 
exploring other cultures, other languages. I've been very, very fortunate to grow up in a family that's from a hugely mixed, diverse background of nationalities, ethnicities, religions, um, geographically all over the place. And that's not just my kind of extended family, but also my close network family. So really it's been quite a huge blessing, but also what comes with that is a sense of trying to keep a sense of calm whilst everything is kind of going uh, a little bit chaotic around you. So it's it's very hard, for example, to, to just jump into a new school and become a complete version of who you are. You know, you have to kind of cut your teeth a little bit and sort of integrate and get used to the characters, get used to the culture, get used to the language, get used to all these things. And often, in in my experience, something I've kind of come to terms with now is that that caused me at times to be somewhat withdrawn. So I would happily be in those situations. I'm actually quite a extroverted, happy, positive, chatty person. But I would very often hold back from really, really, truly being myself and going into what I feel and uh, speaking clearly and speaking my mind and so on. So this is a sort of a issue that I've been going, that I've been dealing with for a long time. And by all means, it's it's improved a lot. In the last couple of years, through obviously my work career change, becoming a voice actor, becoming a comedian, becoming a podcaster, all these things have obviously completely changed how prepared I am to put myself out there and to really put my voice out there and my image and to make myself heard and so on. And I realized when I was doing this deep internal work in the last week with a couple of close friends that the way that this issue has manifested itself in me is partly mental and partly physical. So there are remnants of it. In some circumstances, I'm super confident, super chatty, very comfortable, speak my mind, speak my truth, and it's all gravy. Especially with friends who I've known for a long time, or uh, intimate partner, or even friends who I haven't known for a long time, but have become quite close with, I tend to just be largely myself and it feels great that's that that is who i really am but there there are many occasions especially in sort of group settings where i don't really know many people or or don't know people in depth or if i'm in a kind of new scenario or even in a scenario with people who i do know but maybe i'm just a little bit hesitant or nervous I've, I've always found it easier to be not talkative or to kind of just just to lay low and, and wait for something to happen and then kind of go with that flow and kind of comment on it. So this is the, again, the sort of agreeable nature. Um, it's, it's something that is very useful in some occasions and it's something that's definitely... Uh, a trait rather than a virtue in others. 
So the important thing for me is that I've identified that now and it's become super, super clear to me through experience, through time, and then obviously through this, uh, let's just call it a spiritual journey that I took recently. And I realized, like I just said, the, the, the problem manifests itself in my mind in the sense of overthinking, thinking too much about what other people are interpreting from what I'm saying, from how I look, from how I am, anything like that. And then conversely, it's also manifested itself physically. So I noticed this very specific issue in my life. Um, it was really, really crystallized for me in this last week that on occasion when I have that lock in my head or where where I feel like it would be easier not to speak rather than say something that I really want to or really need to or really should say, that my my physical mouth, my jaw, my actual, the lower part of my head, you know, the full jaw, mouth area will physically kind of shut and I can notice my body closing it. You know, I'm like really clenching my jaw closed. Try it just now, like, obviously just have your normal, feel how your mouth and lips and teeth and so on normally rest. And now try to really kind of clench your mouth shut. It's a little bit different, right? There's a there's a bit of a pressure there. There's a bit of like a, a mind-body connection that, that has to be there in order for you to really kind of clamp your mouth shut. And that little action, that unconscious, subconscious action that I've been doing for a long time has prevented me many times from physically opening my mouth. And that's obviously, it sounds like, okay, well, you know, of course, if you <laughs> if you don't open your mouth, then you can't speak. And if you want to say something, then open your mouth. It sounds really, really obvious. But in the moment when your nerves are high, or you're overthinking, or you're dealing with uh, the way that this scenario has played out in previous situations, or any of this stuff that I'm kind of piling into my experience in the moment, that all manifests itself in, first of all, a delay and a, a, a kind of like awkward energy where I'm not just allowing my brain to flow and for things to kind of crystallize. And then physically it's, it's manifesting in this kind of actual prevention of the mouth muscles that are required to speak properly. And it's funny because, as you can hear now, it's not like, it's not like I've I've not got a loud voice. I've actually got quite a loud voice. I've got a very like uh, imposing, loud, clear, enunciated voice. I'm a voice actor. That's what I do for a living. That's the thing that pays my bills. So it's not it's not like I don't know these things physically. It's not like I don't understand how to speak. It's actually been something that I've been doing my whole life. I've always been uh, involved in some kind of a performance, art or something all the way through school. I kind of put a pause on it for a little while when I was focusing on the career. And as you know, I've been involved in the comedy scene for some years now and doing a talk show, doing online shows, uh, all, all this kind of stuff, 
you know, you're performing in, in front of a few hundred people. There's no way that you're you're going to get by without projecting your voice and really enunciating what you're saying. And I, I can do those things most of the time, but it's just come to my attention that there are some mental and some physical blocks that I really need to work through and identifying them and naming them and putting them into the front of my consciousness, I think is a really good step towards, I, I was, I was going to say fixing them, but I think it's more, it's less about fixing it and more about acknowledging it and allowing it to, and not allowing it to control essentially. Because I want to be very clear. I'm, I'm, oops. I want to be very clear. I'm by no means saying that every single thing I think I should say and every, uh, there should be just a clear 100% path, un unfiltered, un unchecked uh, stream of consciousness piling out of my mouth. Like, no, that's not who I am either. I'm not that guy. I'm definitely somewhere in between. But the, the, the problem that I see, the thing that I'm identifying as a problem, is when I really want to say something, be it something funny, something lighthearted, like a joke, or if there's a group of people and we're all kind of having fun and I have something that I'd like to contribute, just say it, just just let it out, contribute it, and then whatever happens, happens. Some people might like it, some people might not. It doesn't really matter. The point was I wanted to say it and I it felt right to say it, so say it. Then there's also the, the, there is a necessary thinking process that needs to happen. You do need to think before you speak. You can't just be unfiltered. That's not my goal either. But it's just kind of this identification of how I sometimes mentally and sometimes physically block myself from truly revealing who I am through speech and, and, and what I want and what I'm all about. And I don't think that's fair on me for a start. It's not fair on me because if that happens enough as it has in the past, then that becomes a pathology. It becomes a, almost like a parasite, something that's, that's blocking you from being who you are. And it's also unfair in some way on the people around me because it's it it must be a little bit kind of draining and difficult to be with someone when you know that they're holding back or or it's not even holding back it's like pre prevented from being themselves in certain scenarios and especially in scenarios when i'm with people who have seen me in other scenarios just totally relaxed and 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 allowing it to flow and come what may and rubbing some people up the right way so rubbing some people up the wrong way and it's all good that's who i am in some scenarios so i think i've just kind of realized that this is something that i need to work on something that i need to now that has something that has now been named and something that will continue to improve Now to kind of touch on it a little bit more from a sort of spiritual, esoteric angle. So I've thought about it mentally, how situations in my past and certain aspects of my upbringing and so on have manifested themselves in some kind of trauma or memory within my mind. 
and that's obviously impacted the way that occasionally I speak physically, the movement of my mouth and my jaw and my comfort in moving my mouth and my jaw and really pushing from the belly the vibrations that of my voice like I am now. I'm, an, I'm enunciating now because I'm speaking into a microphone, I'm recording a podcast, I know that the best quality audio that you as the listener is going to hear is when it's coming from my diaphragm. It's the reason why Wim Hof, for example, the breathwork expert and guy who's changing uh, modern science, uh, he always encourages people to breathe deep, deep, deep into your stomach. You can breathe with your lungs, you can even breathe with your head, you can really fill everything with oxygen and not just do this kind of shallow breathing that's up here, up in your throat. Shallow speaking is the same thing. If I was to speak like this and you know, you're just kind of hearing this kind of almost like whispered voice, as opposed to this, where I'm really kind of talking to you and, and giving you giving you my all. So that's that's how I've categorized this learning from a memory perspective, a mind perspective, and then a physical perspective. Now for the more esoteric spiritual perspective, there was a good friend of mine who was part of this um, experience, this inner learning experience, and he really perfectly and eloquently articulated something that I kind of already knew, but when someone is kind of so able to articulate something, it brings it into your consciousness. Even though it's something that you already feel that you know, when you hear it, it's like, wow, I'd never really thought of it exactly like that. It's a perfectly eloquent way of putting it. And that is that it's, it, seem, it makes sense to me based on my experience, based on my life, based on what I believe and how, how things have materialized for me in this existence, that consciousness is something that doesn't necessarily get 100% created in the brain. I'm very open to the idea that consciousness comes from somewhere else and occupies a physical body in this 3D world. That might be quite a controversial thing to some people who are listening to this podcast. And it's by no means my 100% dead set opinion. It's not one that I've had for my entire life. In fact, it's only been a few years since I've moved more into this kind of space. And I'm by all means the, definitely one of the people who will put my hands up and say there is a 100% chance that I might have my mind changed depending on how things pan out through learning, through experience, through knowledge. But that's the theory that I'm most kind of subscribing to now from a practical perspective, what I have experienced in my life, that seems to make more sense. And if you're willing to give that theory some credence and bring it into a reality within your life, then you have to see yourself as a mixture of the physical body as well as this consciousness signal that's being pushed through you, so to say. And whatever you do to block that, whether unconscious or conscious, is a disservice to yourself. So 
this kind of ties in again to how I perceived it mentally, how I perceived it physically, and now it's almost the same exact idea, but more from a kind of alternative, spiritual, esoteric side, that perhaps there is a consciousness being that's doing everything it possibly can to manifest itself in this 3D world through my physical body avatar. And when I don't speak my mind, when I don't feel confident enough to say something, when I really, really would like to, or to act when I really, really would like to through fear or through doubt or through overthinking or through pain or trauma or expectation or any other reason, no matter how deep or meaningful or intense the reason might be, it's just not a service to that consciousness that's trying to come through. And the analogy that this friend of mine gave, which was a really, really nice one, it's a, a very uh, uh, beautiful metaphor, really, is like, imagine a growing plant or a beanstalk or something like that, a flower that's trying to grow in this world. And then imagine clipping its wings or doing little things to, to prevent it from doing so, cutting the stem cutting a little bit of this, trimming a little bit of that, not giving it enough water, not giving it enough light. All of these things that you could consciously do to allow it to flourish and to come out in all its glory, that really kind of rang true with me, having come to terms with how I felt with it mentally and physically, this block that I've had in some situations in my life. This was a really, really nice metaphor for me to, to bring it all together. And I know that that might sound quite uh, wild to some people who are listening to this. And if this is the last episode that you ever listened to because you think this is a, 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 a guy who's like lost his mind or he's into some crazy shit or whatever, then so be it. You know, I hope to catch up with you again some other time. Maybe you can loop back around when you have uh, uh, the in inclination to. That's cool. But this is me essentially kind of dissecting my thoughts, my inner monologue, and this uh, deep work that I've been doing recently. And my whole goal with this is to become more of myself, to really identify who I am as a person, and to be putting more of that into the world through this show, and just in general through life. And I hope that that has a knock-on effect on anyone, even if someone's just listened to this. It could be 20 years from now, and then they just happen to hear this one thing and then think, oh my God, that really reminds me about how I can't, um, you know, speak forthrightly in XYZ scenario. And I think that's because I had quite a disrupted uh, geographic childhood upbringing. For example, <coughs> that would mean the world to me. Um, so it's for me and it's also for anyone who is listening to this. So with that said, I hope that that was really, um, I hope that that was useful to someone. It's very useful for me to put that out there. And now we're going to have a little bit of music because we're going to transition into the second part of the show, which is a look back into ancient history, lost ancient high technology. And I hope you enjoy that part of the show too. 
So, welcome to the second part of the show. This is the ancient affairs section for this week. And this week I wanted to do a little bit of a general dive into what I like to call, or what the term that I prefer the most is lost ancient high technology. This is a term coined by an incredible person and an awesome, awesome researcher who you have to check out if you do not know this name. Honestly, pause this podcast, go on this person's YouTube channel. His name is Brian Forster. This guy is an expert in lost ancient high technology around the world. He comes from a scientific background himself. And he's someone who over years and years exploring various sites around the world has completely uh, accepted the idea that there have been lost ancient civilizations from different times in the past, maybe even into some absolutely unbelievable remote distances in the past in terms of time, and that there, the evidence to support that claim is the sheer magnitude and grandeur of some of these artifacts of small to gargantuan size all over the world, as well as a clear depiction of these uh, ancient civilizations in myth and legend and in ancient texts. So Brian Forster does as good a job as any, maybe the best, in documenting these anomalies. He has a museum in Peru and he runs a tour system called Hidden Inca Tours that he and other researchers take uh, guests and they go to all of a whole series of different locations all over the world, some close to where he lives in Peru and in Bolivia and in Mexico and in these kind of places in South and Central America. And I know that he's done multiple tours in Egypt and he's done multiple tours in, um, you know, in Europe, in Malta and all these different places where we have evidence of these megalithic cultures that just don't seem to fit the narrative of mainstream archaeology. It's a dream of mine, absolutely, one day to go on one of these trips with Brian or at least to go and uh, do a trip to Peru myself or Easter Island or one of these um, mysterious places and to pop into his museum. So it's this is really just a shameless plug for someone who I follow very closely and who's really opened my eyes and changed my mind and um, really kind of inspired me. He's one of the, the characters that's really inspired me to start this show altogether, just to just to I feel like through learning from people like Brian Forster, I, I have to get a voice out there and I have to join this uh, conversation in terms of what has happened in our ancient past and how mainstream science just does not come up to scrutiny when it comes to these unbelievable anomalies. So a lot of the content that I'll be talking about today is covered in depth in video and photos and texts through Brian Forster's website and his YouTube channel. So I'm going to link them in the description notes for the show. And there's also a whole bunch of other researchers who I follow very closely online, a lot of big um, YouTube channels and some small ones who really put out some amazing content and are quite an inspiration to 
anyone who's into alternative views of history. And the things that really, really ring true to me are the things where you just look at something and you have to ask yourself, what is the evidence that this was part of our mainstream history? It's a, it's a harder thing for me to argue that some of these artifacts were done using the methods that the mainstream archaeologists claim they were they were they used to make them it's much easier to admit that we know nothing about who these people were when this happened and how they did it and then begin to investigate and to think and to be have an open mind and to have a critical mind as to how this is physically possible and the conclusion that I seem to come to, I'm talking specifically a lot about these massive megalithic monuments around the world that defy the laws of science in the way that we understand them. Now, that's not to say that there is not a physical, scientific, within this realm, 3D explanation for these things, but to say that we know it and that we case is closed, there's no reason to investigate any of this anymore. We know that the whole complex that's in um, Saskayhuaman and uh, you know all of these uh, places in in Peru and in in Mexico and so on were made by the Inca and the Aztecs, and that we know for a fact that everything that was built in Egypt was built within this couple of thousand years period by the dynastic Egyptians. They didn't inherit anything. This is all their work, just using copper chisels and bashing on bashing stones on diorite columns to create what is, quite frankly, a completely stunning backdrop to all of this. I think a lot of this stuff goes back to Egypt. You have to think about Egypt and the Giza Plateau and all of these amazing places like the Aswan um, quarries and the incredible artifacts like i'll just name a couple of them you know there's this unfinished obelisk in egypt just look it up unfinished obelisk this is a obelisk shape that's that was halfway cut out of the bedrock and for some reason tools have just been dropped this is a common theme in all of uh, brian forster's insights and a lot of these researchers who are actually boots on the ground looking at all this stuff physically is that there seems to be a situation where suddenly everything stopped. Something has happened, whether it's a global cataclysm or the some form of a, a, a end of an era or end of a species or something has prevented a lot of these uh, uh, monuments to be finished. You look at a thing like the unfinished obelisk in Egypt and it just defies sense there's a humongous single piece of granite that's being removed from the bedrock and the marks that are left in the parts that are not completed are these weird scoop marks. So it's, it seems to the naked eye that this, like if this thing was made of a soft material, you could imagine that they were using something hot to scoop it out like like you would if it was made of butter for example you take a uh, a spoon and you just kind of scoop out the main part and then you polish the edge to make it that nice straight edge like most obelisks have but this is not a material that 
one could simply scoop like butter using any of the accepted techniques of how we manipulate matter in our understanding of science as we currently know it. And yet, instead of having that open mind and that keen eye of how did they do this? How did they really do this? When there is no clear evidence whatsoever that the main explanations of how these things were made is actually how they were made, there has been no evidence presented that's anywhere near clear and clear-cut to show you that this is how they made these things. It seems to me like a disservice to our humanity and our place on this earth to just think that we know everything and that we just accept that we understand how they made all of this. It's all just been done with time. They threw a whole bunch of slaves at the pyramids. The 1,400 ton blocks that are in Baalbek, Lebanon, that have been literally carved out of the bedrock and placed, and some of them which are, again, half finished and just half scooped, so to say, out of the bedrock, and they're just sitting there. Some of them were so deep that it's likely that the Romans never even found them. They're so deep in the ground that there was a whole load of civilizations that came one after another and didn't even see them. The only reason we saw them is because we have all of our modern surveying techniques and so on. You look at all these things around the world and I find it very, very, very hard to just accept the mainstream explanation for where these things come from. Now, the next part of that is the speculation part. So anyone can speculate. I can speculate, you can speculate, Brian Forster can speculate, alternative researchers can speculate, scientists can speculate, but the, that's not the thing that we should be 100% relying on. So I'm, I'm not proposing that I know how these things were done. I've heard a lot of very interesting theories and I will get into those episode by episode. There's off the top of my head, five, ten different things that I found compelling that provide, in my opinion, through my understanding of these topics, a better explanation as to how these things were made rather than the mainstream. But that doesn't mean that I believe them. It doesn't mean that I'm 100% saying, this is how this is made. I know the answer. What I am saying is that the mainstream explanations and the people who dig their heels in the ground with the mainstream explanations as their dogma, that is as much of an ego-based decision on the explanation of the origins of these monuments as it is to speculate that it was XYZ other theory. Just because there's a mainstream consensus on this right now, today, doesn't mean that there will be very soon. And you just have to look at other things that have been completely moved when it comes to mainstream consensus. I mentioned Wim Hof earlier. Wim Hof is a extreme athlete, you would call him, I guess, the mainstream would call him, but his whole thing is that every single human can do the things that he's doing. And he has single-handedly, through scientific research and through pushing and pushing and pushing for decades now, he ha has single-handedly led this movement that is changing how we understand the physiology of the body. 
he's creating the new paradigm of how many white blood cells we can have in our in our uh, white or red blood cells, I can't remember which one, are in our blood just through focused breathing. He claims that we can cure traumas and physical issues that we've had for years and years, terrible diseases and prevention of terrible diseases using simply deep breath work, focus and certain physical movements. And if you had asked any mainstream scientists before Wim Hof came around what the limits were of the human body, they would all agree. They would all say, yep, there's a consensus. People can usually submerge themselves underwater for X amount of time because they can just take one deep breath and then go down. There's maybe some people who could do it for a couple more minutes than that, and that's it. And then you get someone like Wim Hof who can swim underneath ice and teach other people, teach other normal people who are not particularly athletic, and some of them who are even actually very sick, to climb up a mountain that's covered in snow just in shorts because they prepared their bodies through this simple breath work. So I have that same kind of attitude uh, to these ancient civilizations and these monuments that are spotted all over the world that don't, that when you look at them logically, don't seem to have been built or created or uh, implemented using the methods that the mainstream say they used. It's the same for me as we're, I feel like we're just on this precipice where there's enough people who have a voice, who are putting out content that is just stunning, that shows that these things are anomalies and they require further investigation and that we don't have all the answers. And the, the, the argument is piling higher and higher to question these things and to make these things more flexible and malleable and to have an open mind and to think what could this be how could these things have been made not just to say well we know how to manipulate granite in this certain way and therefore we apply it to this whole thing even though it doesn't make sense even though there's no one who's ever demonstrated that you can do that physically and the ones if you look it up go look it up on youtube look up the uh, mainstream explanations of how they built, for example, the Great Pyramid of Giza or shaped some of these stones. And you'll see that the likes of, you know, National Geographic and Discovery Channel and all these um, mainstream uh, articles in, in academia, they demonstrate what they believe to be the techniques and they fall flat in the videos. It doesn't make sense. It's It's like... It's like someone going up to Wim Hof and saying, you simply are an alien. And the way that you have managed to um, su supersede all of these limits is because you are a single anomaly that, that is unexplainable. Whereas what he's saying is, study me, put the uh, science into my system, find out why I'm able to do these things, and then through that investigation, we've basically changed the textbooks on physiology and trauma and healing. So why can't we put that kind of a microscope onto some of these 
unbelievable sites from the ancient past. And the knowledge and wisdom of some of these tribal cultures around the world and, and just really start to kind of absorb that knowledge and to think openly about what these things are, why they're there and how they got there. So I'm definitely going to get into more specifics of some of these sites, but I kind of wanted to just have this episode, which is a little bit of an introduction into how I feel about things and where my mind is when it comes to the past and just how little we know. I remember being taught in school that the pyramids were tombs. That's what we were taught. We, we did a whole year on ancient Egypt. We learned all about the dynastic kings and, and the, the way that they used pulley systems and papyrus and all these other innovative technologies for the time. And it's not to downplay those things. Those things are probably also true. Maybe they were the first people to use pulleys. Great. But you cannot build something like the Great Pyramid of Giza or the Colossi of um, Menkore or the Edfu Temple or and, and, and. There's thousands and thousands of unbelievable, unexplained structures just in Egypt that make no sense. So that's kind of where I stand on that. And I hope that you guys enjoy some of this content again you might find this a little bit too wild a little bit too crazy and that's okay that's okay i encourage anyone to look into it yourself go to brian forster's youtube channel the channel is in the show description filter his videos by most viewed and just watch the the, the first five videos some of his videos have millions hundreds of millions of views this is just a normal guy from a scientific background who goes and films and documents these sites and talks in a very uh, calm and knowledgeable way about how much we don't know. When you can find perfect core drill marks in some of the hardest stones we have on earth, that when analyzed by people who understand drills, say that the precision is 50 times better than what we could achieve today with our advanced diamond bit technology. That for me is an anomaly, something that needs to be studied. Brian Forster has a museum in Peru where he has a private collection of these elongated skulls. This is another huge anomaly that should be investigated by mainstream science. Some of them are through cranial deformation, binding, where an infant has had their head wrapped in a certain way so that it grows into that funny elongated shape, funny to us. But some of them, it's provable through missing parts, missing sutures and other strange anomalies with the size of the eye sockets, the size of the nose, the size of the head, all of that stuff, that they were born that way. These are humanoids that existed, that we have their remains and they're not human. They're not Homo sapiens sapien. They're something else. So how can there just be one voice or, you know, a few hundred or a few thousand voices on YouTube who are kind of really pushing this? And, you know, we're building on a lot of research made by a lot of proper groundbreaking people, the likes of Graham Hancock, Robert Pavol, John Anthony West, and all of the things that they have studied, all of the other alternative people for years and years and centuries and centuries who have been p putting forward these other 
theories. It seems to me, why why doesn't the mainstream want to go and, and contact Brian Forster and say, Brian, w- w- what's going on with these skulls? Can we send a team? I'm in the, the investigative um, wing of this science department in this university, and it would be a huge honor and an incredible achievement to understand a little bit more about these crazy skulls that are clearly not human homo sapiens sapien. No one seems to want to do that. It's, it's very baffling. Even Brian Forster talks about it a lot, how he's surprised about that. He puts all of this content online. He talks at a lot of these alternative conventions. You know, there, there's a lot of, uh, there's a, a scene for it. You know, there's the, the UFO people and the, um, the consciousness people and the AI people and the, all, all, these, all these different things. And the likes of these alternative theories, uh, alternative theorists, they, they go to these conventions and that's how they get heard. But what I don't understand is why are there no people from the mainstream who want to understand more about these anomalies? Why isn't there someone saying this is clearly not made by hammer and chisel, for example, Pumapunku in Bolivia? There's a, there are some people who are, who are making studies, who are proposing other solutions like geopolymers or... Um, that they had a way of manipulating sound or vibrations or, or who, who knows what it is. But you don't have to go from a completely esoteric, uh, symbolic lens. That I do. I, I appreciate that side of things. But the point I'm making is a cut-and-dry scientist could go to one of these places and learn a lot and change the paradigm of what we understand to be true. And uh, someone who has done that, for example, is Robert Schock. Robert Schock is a geologist from Boston University who was so astounded by the water weathering in the Sphinx enclosure on the Giza Plateau in Egypt that he risked everything and his tenure and everything in in his university and so on to talk about it as a a geologist, as not, not, not taking into account the mainstream view of when this plateau was inhabited by who and how they built it and so on, but just looking at the rocks and seeing that there is thousands and thousands of years of precipitation watermarks on this rock that could not have come about any time in the recent past. It's been 10,000 plus years since there's been that level of water flow in Egypt, in the desert. At some point, we know that that area was lush and green and wet and probably very, very beautiful and tropical. So at some point, you have to look at that, a stone wall that has 10,000 years of, or plus, 10,000 years plus of water weathering on it, and say, this wall was built way earlier than the accepted story of ancient Egypt. And so he's he's someone who I really look up to, one of these these to the core scientists who's just open and willing to think about other alternatives, or at least to name the things that don't make sense, to name the anomalies. So that's kind of what I wanted to touch on today. Um, it's you, you can look at these things from a hundred different lenses, and I, I look forward to doing that. There is a place for the esoteric and the symbolic. If anything, it, it could arguably be the, the biggest place. You look at these sites as symbolic uh 
artifacts as the ancient past trying to talk to the future through the language of symbolism. That's a huge, huge uh, study. That's something I'm also very into. But the thing that I think is more accessible to people of all backgrounds, of all uh, nationalities, of all uh, educational backgrounds, of all um, you know, w whatever your spiritual, religious, atheistic convention conviction is, regardless of any of that, if you look at something that has 10,000 years of water weathering, you have to assume that it's been there for longer than 10,000 years. W what, what's the mystery? Where's the, how is that, how could you possibly contest that if you're looking at it with a critical eye? The only reason you would not, you would not accept that is if there was a dogmatic belief that it was physically impossible because XYZ reason from archaeology to this present date. And that for me, like I said, is like going up to Wim Hof and saying, no, you're simply wrong. We know everything about the body and it's not even worth investigating your uh, methods. And the fact that you can teach other people exactly what you're doing and that they can, through um, uh, scientific tests, prove that you can prevent disease and uh, climb up a mountain and all of these things. So essentially, I just wanted to kind of kick off this ancient civilization part of the show. I will be touching on this over the next few episodes and getting into some of these uh, sites a little bit more deeply talking a little bit more about the work from some of the other uh, researchers who I've been following and just to kind of get this ball rolling and to start getting my voice out there because this is really something that, that means a lot to me and I think it means a lot to humanity and it's something that's really important for us to understand where we're going. We need to understand where we've came from, where we've come from. It's, it's not cut and dry for me that we just know everything about the past and we are the pinnacle of technology and existence, that consciousness is 100% manufactured in the brain, everything is physical matter, there is nothing else, there is no point in uh, questioning, there is no point in not accepting that paradigm. It's, it's a theme that I see throughout different parts of our existence here, and it's something that I'm very happy to be questioning, it's something that I'm very happy to be discussing openly, and I hope that if you're listening to this, even if just one little thing has sparked your curiosity, just go and check these things out. Check out Wim Hof, check out Brian Forster. Go look into Egypt, go and look into the unfinished obelisk, go and look into the stone of the pregnant lady in Baalbek in Lebanon. Go look at Pumapunku in Bolivia. Go check out uh, Chichen Itza and some of the crazy anomalies there. Go look at even, you know, you don't have to go so, um, so far until you find one. There's megalithic, crazy, unexplained sites all over the world. They're in Malta, they're in Japan, there's wild pyramids and structures in Japan above and underwater. There's 20% of the land that was once above water is now underwater. So how anyone can say that it's all been explored and we understand exactly where the, what the past is and how it, how it all came about is, is, is a disservice. That's the point of what I'm trying to say. So... Thanks very much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Um, I hope you enjoy the new structure with the bit of music in the middle. And it's a pleasure to do this. I can't quite believe that we've got to an hour. It hasn't felt like it. Um, I love doing this show and I really hope that you enjoy it. I've got a, another 
episode coming up. I'll probably do another couple of these episodes where I'm talking about the ancient past and so on and my self-reflections for the next couple of weeks. And then after that, I've got the part two uh, conversation with Brendan. He came round the other day and we recorded a podcast episode. And if you heard his episode, he we, we kind of went off the rails towards the end and we started talking about food and um, how... Uh, he was going to make a pie and come round, and we were going to uh, enjoy this incredible pie and we did and we had the, the microphone going while we were eating the pie and just talking about food and talking about life and our upbringings and uh, just a whole bunch of stuff and uh, so you got that to look forward to as well and I've had some really great recorded conversations with Justin as well who you guys have heard from and yeah, it's been a pleasure, as always. If you're enjoying the show, please like and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to it on. This show is available to listen on all of the main platforms. It's on Spotify, it's on Google, it's on uh, iHeartRadio, it's on Pandora, it's on all iTunes, it's on everything. So find it, like, subscribe, get involved, and see you next week. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Question This Life. You can listen to the podcast at questionthislife.com, as well as all of the main podcast platforms. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and get involved.